Well, I'm sure as you've picked up from our music, uh, a bit of a theme today on the new year and what lies ahead. It is somewhat natural for us as we transition to 2023 and uh, begin to think ahead that we step back and take some assessments and, and take stock of our lives to think about things that may lie ahead, goals that might be in front of us, maybe some things that need to change or things that we hope to, to do better or to be different in the year to come. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to seize that opportunity and to, uh, to think about that in terms of some scriptural truths. There are a ton of places that we could go and do that, uh, many that I've reflected on this week. But, but this morning, I want us to uh, turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1 to a very familiar verse, a very familiar passage to try to help us refocus our minds on, uh, on this important truth and how it needs to be applied in our lives in the year to come. Romans 1 verses 16 and 17 is this familiar passage. It is Paul's summary statement about his message to the Romans, his summary statement about the gospel, and really his summary statement about why he wants to come to them. He, he begins this letter with 15 verses, uh, really outlining his desire to come and see them, and not only to see them, but to impart to them some spiritual fruit, to be mutually encouraged by them, and to preach the gospel to them and to everyone in Rome. And as he will get to at the end of this book, in chapter 16, he'll even want to be aided by them, helped by them to go beyond Rome and into Spain and to all these other regions. So that's kind of the bookends, the, 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 the parentheses, I guess you would say, around this book, this, this idea of Paul's mission and his desire to come and to preach to them. And yet in the midst of all that, he, he uh, wants to give an explanation of why. Why he wants, why he would have so much zeal, so much eagerness to preach the gospel to them. He, he thinks it's important for them to understand this. And so he says in verse 16, he gives us the reason why. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. This uh, is a statement of motivation for Paul. And it ought to be a statement of motivation for you as well. It's a statement of motivation for every believer who understands what Paul is saying here, a statement of motivation on why you would want to tell others about this gospel of Jesus Christ. And it really launches the entire rest of the book. The entire book of Romans unpacks what Paul has to say in just these couple of verses, why he's uh, not ashamed with, uh, about the gospel and, and what it's really all about. But before he gets to that, he gives us this, this summary statement. And he introduces this idea of shame. Uh, why he's not ashamed of it. And 
Alternatively, why he is eager to proclaim it. It raises a question, why or, or, or how exactly did he reason in his mind? How and why did he have no shame? Why was he so bold? Why was he so eager? What was his zeal? What was the driving motivation that would cause him to not only want to travel all of the distance and to take on all of the, the, the sort of pitfalls and dangers, but to go to the very heart of the Roman Empire, to the very Caesar who had shown so much animosity against Paul and against other believers, and why would he want to take on the risk of going into the wild frontiers in those days, the edges of the Roman Empire, the barbarians, and, uh, and all of those who he might encounter in Spain, why would Paul leave the ease and the comfort of his uh, sort of uh, scholarly life and uh, the comfort of his own people and his own culture and his own nation? Why would he do all of that? What, what is it that drove all of that? And above all, why is he so bold in wanting to proclaim this? This, by the way, would be an incredibly relevant topic for his readers, uh, those living in Rome at the time, because Rome was not only the political capital of the Roman Empire, it was the cultural capital. It was the central hub of society and power and politics, but not only that, the central hub of wealth and influence. This is the, the, the place where all of the important people were, the place where all of the movers and shakers were. Not only that, it, as I said, is the cultural center of the, of the empire. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, trying to supplant what had been the center of society up to that point, which had been Greece and all of its philosophical uh, schools and all of its philosophical influence. And so it was a... It was a swirling mess of competing worldviews and ideas that were all out to outstrip one another, to, to uh, position themselves against one another, and a very competitive environment, to say the least, a high-pressure environment. And for those who lived in Rome, it, it came with a certain sense of intimidation, to think that you introducing this worldview, this idea, this message of the gospel that would supplant all other messages, that would uh, expose all other worldviews in their falsehood. There would have been a sense for those living in Rome at that point to be intimidated and to be ashamed, but not for Paul. I mean, this was a man who had already been chased out of many cities. He had been ridiculed in so many spots. He had been stoned already in some places. He had been called a blasphemer in his hometown in Jerusalem. He had been called a babbler in Athens. He was called a fool in Corinth. More than once he had been imprisoned. He'd already kind of suffered all of these things at the hands of the culture and the political an influential elite. 
He had so many reasons personally, if you looked into his life, why he would just walk away and why he would just give up, while he, why he would just sort of, sort of slink back into obscurity, why he might just decide that it's all really too painful, all really too rough for him to keep pressing forward with this gospel. He had so many reasons to be, if not ashamed, at least fatigued in preaching this gospel. So many reasons to shrink back. And as he prepared to go to Rome, those would have been as relevant as ever in that city. But he wants them to know he has no shame. He wants them to know he has no hesitations in his preparations to come. In fact, he has nothing but eagerness and zeal that continues to drive him. By the way, this is not because he's naive. He, he very well knew what awaited him in Rome. I mean, he, he, is, he says really with as much insight as anywhere, beginning in verse 18 and going through the rest of the chapter, he kind of, kind of lays out the overall hostility to the message of the gospel that is there in the unbelieving mind. These are people who, he says, verse 22, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. So he knows that this is what he faces here in Rome. He knows that these are people who, who have all these claims of wisdom, who have all of these claims of, of, uh, uh, of education and erudition. He knows that they have already rejected the truth of God. He knows in verse 28... Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I mean, he knows this is what he faces whenever he goes to a city like Rome, really anywhere he goes in the empire. He, uh, he fully understands what, is, what he's up against when it comes to preaching this gospel. He knows all of these things. Many of us have, have sensed that kind of hostility from time to time. We have faced it in places of work or in places of the marketplace, in our own, uh, in our own homes, our own families, sometimes with your own spouse. And we all wrestle with the temptation to shrink back in shame a bit, intimidation at least, in the face of it. Despite the frequent warnings of the Lord, too often whenever we are confronted with these kinds of attitudes and these kinds of, uh, of worldviews, we, uh, we, just, we just choose not to bring up the gospel. It's too painful. It is too costly. We would rather settle for the superficial peace that we can find. We certainly don't always seek out people to take this gospel to. 
to challenge them with. We understand people are uneasy when we bring up spiritual things. We know our message is viewed as distasteful or mean-spirited or naive. We know those things. We know what the unbelieving mind is like. We struggle then to avoid the sin of being ashamed. But here's a man who understood all these things, all this hatred for the truth. He had had experienced it at a very personal level. And yet his declaration to these Romans is, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Or to restate it in a positive sense, Paul says, I am eager. I am proud to uphold this message there in Rome. Why is that? Well, he gives us two basic explanations in these verses in verse 16 it's because this gospel is the power of God and verse 17 because the righteousness of God is revealed through it now I want to take a few moments this morning as we think ahead to the next year and all of the opportunities that lay ahead of us both both close to home and both in our marketplace, our workplace, and even outside of that, all of our interactions, as we think about the opportunities ahead for us, it is certainly my prayer that we would have this same kind of boldness with this message. And so we want to understand where it came from with the Apostle Paul. What are his motivations in being so bold with this message? The first reason he gives us in verse 16 for why he wasn't ashamed of this gospel is because it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he says. He's not ashamed because when the gospel is proclaimed, when he took it on his, his, uh, his lips, when he spoke it, God's power is at work. And when he's talking about power, don't, don't imagine that he's talking about a particular uh, style to his own presentation or even a power in his own personality or even a, a sort of a technique that he might have used with people. He's not talking about personal power. He's not talking about any kind of leverage in that sense. What he means is that every time the gospel is proclaimed, it facilitates the power of God, the power from God for salvation. In other words, when you share the gospel with someone else, something powerful takes place. And of course, you don't see sparks fly. You don't see fireworks like you might have seen last night. You don't see some massive display in the sky. And so because of all that, you might be tempted to think that it's not powerful. You might be tempted to think that it is somewhat somewhat. Uh, uh, muted or lame or whatever it might be, you might be tempted to be ashamed of it because when you speak it, it seems like it falls so flat so many times for so many people. In fact, you're tempted to think quite the opposite, not that it's powerful, but that it's weak, that it's unimpressive. But Paul has this abiding sense that What he carried in his heart and what he took on his lips unleashed the power of God. And this is a very particular power. It's not the power of healing. It's not the power of walking on water or some other miracle of nature. It is a power for salvation. That's the realm in which this power takes place, Paul says. In other words, while God's power 
may often be, be displayed uh, in, in, the, in the life of Christ through miracles and, and other wonders. This power is displayed in salvation. By the way, salvation is one of those words we throw around a lot, but we don't often think about the, the, the meaning of it. It, it is a, uh, a word that we use a lot of times in the present tense. We ask people, are you saved or have you been saved? We speak about it in the present tense, but in reality, salvation is a future reality. It is a, uh, what we might say in, in, in theological terms is an eschatological reality. What we're talking about when we talk about salvation is salvation at the judgment of God. We're talking about salvation from eternal condemnation. We're talking about being saved from the guilt that you will stand under at the judgment of God. So, so when, when we use this word salvation or when Paul uses this word salvation, we need to clarify in our minds what he's talking about so that we can understand the power that he's talking about. This is a power, this is an authority related to the final reckoning of your life. The power of God specifically to change that final reckoning. The power of God to change your status in that final reckoning. And so it's a power, we might say, whose full manifestation will only be seen in the future. That means that when you preach this gospel, it may not necessarily be visibly powerful, but you shouldn't be fooled into thinking, therefore, that it's not powerful. Salvation, Paul says, is at work, and therefore powerful things are happening, even if the full evidence of that still waits the future. You know, if you attend a, a court, if you were to stand in a courtroom, a criminal courtroom, and everything has been said and all the evidence has been presented and now all you are doing is awaiting the final verdict. Everyone is standing there, everyone is sitting and waiting for the judge to make the pronouncement. And if you're there as one accused, the moment that the words are spoken, the moment that the judge declares you guilty, there aren't necessarily sparks, no fireworks, no display, nothing visibly might change in the courtroom. Everyone is sitting in the same place or standing in the same place, dressed the same way. Everything is the same, but something astounding and something remarkable changes. The whole course of your life changes. You go from being free to being condemned. You go from being free to being bound in prison. If the offense is weighty, you are locked up for life or possibly even condemned to death. So even though there are no sparks and even though there are no fireworks, there are, doesn't mean that this isn't something very powerful that happens. It can be such a, a powerful event, a surreal experience for people who are involved. In the midst of it, it might be difficult to believe what's even happening as it's happening. You can't take in all of the power. But Paul says this is what is facilitated through the preaching of the gospel. It's literally the power 
of moving people from condemnation to salvation. It's literally the power of their entire eternity shifting. And of course, Paul understands this, and this is why he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to preach this message that has this much power. And of course, we know that there are other powerful elements in the gospel that extend beyond that sort of just legal status, that legal declaration. We know the power of the gospel even penetrates our hearts. The power changes us from the inside. We go from being spiritually dead to the things of God to spiritually alive to the things of God. The whole worldview of a person is changed in a moment. Their affections, their purpose, the direction of their life is all transformed in an instant. All of that powerfully happens through the preaching of the gospel. But the power that Paul particularly focuses on here is not that power of new birth or not that power of regeneration. It's the power of salvation. That power which is facilitated by the gospel, and as Paul says here, comes to everyone who believes. That is how you experience the power. By believing and accepting that God is your judge, and then by believing and accepting that he has made a provision for your guilt to be wiped away. That's it. That's the power. The power of just accepting that he is your judge and accepting that he made provision for your sins to be wiped away and you experience this power. Again, we, we can overlook all of this because the full, the full demonstration of it doesn't happen all right now in the present. In fact, in the present, we tend to focus on the emotional reactions to this, the rejections that people might give the spurning of this message, the accusations that come against you, accusations of pride or narrowness or whatever people may say as if they're the ones who are actually the final judge. That would be like standing in the court cowering at the taunts and the mockery of the criminal rather than the judge. But that's what we do. Paul says, no, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to stand with the judge. I'm not ashamed to proclaim and carry on my lips what he has to say. And all of this gave Paul an incredible confidence, an incredible boldness. And he says all this salvation, it comes to all of those who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He doesn't elaborate on this here, but he will later in the book. He, he will come back to this several times. He'll talk about the particular advantages that God had given to the Jews and how he had preached the gospel to them first, how he had given them all the benefits of the covenants and how he had already revealed this gospel in the ages past to them, how his gospel aligns with all that Old Testament messaging and then he'll talk about how even on a national scale, there will be particular favor shown to the Jews in the end times. In other words, Paul talks about the preaching of this gospel 
to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. He speaks about it as a, as a theological, a historical reality. But although the Jews are first, he says, it's for also the Greeks, which in this context means everyone who's not a Jew. That would be me and you. This is a way of talking about while God has clearly shown his favor to the Jewish people, he doesn't do that exclusively. He, he has mandated that this gospel be preached to everyone. To Jews, yes, but also to everyone else. So this is the gospel. This is the full power of the gospel that Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Why would I be ashamed to share something like that, the, the message of the judge himself? So he says he's eager to come and preach because the power, excuse me, the message that he preaches has this power. And there's a second reason he's not ashamed of it. You'll see in verse 17, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals the righteousness of God. In it, his, he says in verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now that phrase, by the way, righteousness of God is used eight times in the book of Romans. Outside of Romans, it's only used one other time. So it's safe to say that this this phrase is a distinctive, a very important characteristic of this book. And because of that, there's been a, a lot of debate about it. We don't have time to trace all of those out this morning, but I'll just summarize the debate for you in this way. This phrase, the righteousness of God, has been, has been uh, interpreted to mean one of three things. Righteousness as an attribute of God righteousness as an activity of God or righteousness as a gift of God. Or you could say that this righteousness is described sometimes as who God is, sometimes as what God does, and sometimes as how God does it. And as I said, we're not going to trace all of those things through, but I will just simply say this, that to understand how Paul uses this you really need to understand his foundation in the Old Testament. He is essentially preaching and conveying what he understood from the Scripture as well as from what God had revealed to him. And this idea of God's righteousness is used in the Old Testament specifically in, re in reference to his judgment. When you look into the Old Testament, what you find is that righteousness has the basic idea of being right according to a judge... And you can see it by way of contrast in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 23, where the prophet is pronouncing in that great chapter a series of woes against all of Israel's leaders. And one of the things he has to say is a, a, a woe against the wicked judges of Israel, who he says, declare righteous or justify the guilty for a bribe. And deprive the innocent of what is right. This is what they do. He's essentially saying that these wicked judges were declaring people to be right before the law or declaring them to be righteous. And they were doing this on the basis of bribes. The, the Hebrew word, by the way, for righteous or justify or acquit, the various ways it's translated there. The, the basic Hebrew word is tzedek or tzedek. It's, 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 it has a 
in the uh, uh, grammatical form, it has a causative sense. So it has the idea of causing someone to be justified or causing someone to be acquitted or causing someone to be righteous. And so in this sense, you, you hear this idea of righteousness. It's essentially a declaration. You're declaring someone to be right. And of course, this is... This is used in Isaiah against these unrighteous judges who are doing this uh, on the basis of, uh, of corruption, on the basis of a bribe. They were declaring someone to be right in spite of their guilt. But when you move to other places of the Old Testament where the subject isn't these unjust judges, but the subject is God, you still see God as the judge declaring people to be right according to the law. He is the one who's presented in the ju- as the judge. In fact, in most cases, the Old Testament, in most places where judgment or judge is, is discussed, it is a reference to God as judge. So this is your basic idea. God's declaration and judgment His declaration and judgment about people being righteous. Now, this idea of righteousness is then often combined in the Old Testament with salvation because salvation flows out of God's declaration of you as righteous. And so you'll hear it, Psalm 98, verse 2. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the, sight of nation, in the sight of nations, you see him bringing together those ideas of salvation and righteousness. He combines those things, by the way, and often speaks about it in terms of his revelation, making something known. He's going to make known his righteous judgment. He's going to make known his salvation. Isaiah 46, I bring near my righteousness... It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. In Isaiah 51 verse 8, My righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Isaiah 56 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So you see all of this confluence of these ideas of God's righteous declaration, which then leads to God's salvation being revealed. And of course, when you come here to Romans chapter 1, you see all of these things come together. This is exactly what Paul is bringing together here, just like in the Old Testament. The, power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's like a statement straight out of the Psalms. This is his gospel through which God is making his righteous declaration known. This righteous declaration, sometimes we call it forensic righteousness. Forensic is just a, a word referring to legal Matters. This is a legal declaration. This, this righteous declaration or this idea of God's righteousness as a forensic idea really stands at the heart of Paul's gospel. 
It was this idea that the only way for you to experience the salvation of God is for God to declare you to be righteous. It wasn't by you proving something to God. It wasn't by you earning anything from God. It wasn't by you being good enough for God. It is simply by God declaring you to be righteous as His gift. This was the basis of His salvation. By the way, here all this come together in the only other place that you find this term outside of the book of Romans. In in Philippians chapter 3, Paul uses the righteousness of God in that one place. He says in in Philippians 3, 9, that he wants to be found in Christ Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith, the righteousness from God that depends on, on faith. So the contrast is very clear there. Not my own righteousness, not any righteousness that I could achieve on my own from the law, but a righteousness that is given to me as a gift from God. A right standing before the judge. This, by the way, is the idea that launched the, the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, his 95 Theses, this This notion was embedded there that righteousness is the gift of God. It was... It was propounded and expounded through many writings of the Protestant Reformation. This was what is fundamentally behind the break between the Roman Catholic Church and all Protestant churches, this idea that God makes a declaration of our right standing before Him simply on the basis of our faith. And so we stand justified. We stand made righteous by God's declaration. And so when we read this here or anywhere in Romans, Paul is telling us that through the gospel, God is making known His salvation. God is revealing His salvation the same way He did in the Old Testament. He's making known those that He would declare to be righteous and therefore those that He's willing to save. And all of this, he says, is revealed through His gospel. All of it is not just when he says revealed, it isn't just saying that, that it's declared or even, even saying that people just apprehend it. He's saying that it takes effect, that it becomes operable through the preaching of his gospel. This is, for Paul, not just some academic discussion. This isn't just sitting down, you know, at a, a, a coffee shop, or I don't know where they sat in Rome, you know, those days, some sort of shop. This isn't just sitting down with someone in a park somewhere and having some philosophical debate. No, he's saying this, this is the way that God's salvation takes up operation in this world. It's very similar to the way in verse 18, he says that God's wrath is being revealed or God's wrath is is operating or taking effect. He says God's wrath takes effect in certain ways, uh, be uh, in the sense of giving people up to the debasing of their minds. As he goes on from verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, uh, this wrath of God is being revealed in the unfolding disaster of their life. As they go on from one depraved behavior 
to the next depraved behavior or one self-destructive behavior to the, ne- to the next self-destructive behavior, the next manifestation of God's wrath against them. All of this is the wrath of God in operation all around us. If you just open up your eyes and you just pay attention to a few people who've been on this pathway for very long, you see the clear evidence of God's hand of wrath in their life. It's operable. It's visible. It is revealed, he says. Well, Paul says in the same way, God's salvation is being revealed. It is put into operation as he is declaring people righteous. He's declaring them righteous. And all of this is revealed, all this becomes operable through believing. It's a salvation that's operable through faith. By the way, we don't have time to fully unpack that, but Paul does do that over in chapter 3, verse 21. He does it much better than I ever could. He says in Romans 3.21, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Again, we can't unpack that fully, but Paul's clearly saying here that God is revealing his righteousness through this gospel in such a way that he can be both just, that is to say, he can punish every sin, he can punish other people's sins, he can punish your sin, and at the same time, he can be a merciful God. A merciful God who justifies, who declares you righteous, who gives you salvation. And the way that he does that, Paul says, is by something called propitiation. Propitiation just simply means a substitute. He sent his Savior as a substitute. Because of what you've done, Christ came to stand in your place and to take all the wrath of God. So that now God's salvation can be manifest, it can be revealed in your life. But this all becomes operative through faith, or as Paul says it here, operating from faith to faith. That's a a little bit of a difficult statement for people to understand, but Paul most likely is just restating what he said in verse 16 when he talked about everyone who believes. In other words, from one person's faith to the next person's faith. From the next person who accepts the gospel to the next person who accepts the gospel to the next person, God is revealing His salvation. 
as he declares person after person to be just and to become the object of his favor. Paul says all this and then quotes from the book of Habakkuk as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. This has always been the way. This is the only way. The only way that people have ever stood before God, the only way that they've ever found His favor has been by faith. So Paul says, why would I be ashamed of that? Why would I shrink back from that? Why, why would I let anyone's rejection or intimidation or ridicule or anger or cold response, why would I let any of that cause me to be ashamed of proclaiming this message? It is a powerful powerful message and although people may not want to recognize the power although they may want to may not want to recognize how God's wrath is already being revealed in their life and although they may not want to recognize how God's salvation is already being revealed in your life although they may not want to see all that doesn't detract from the power And so Paul says, I have an incredibly powerful message. And because of that, I'm going to share it. And I want to come to Rome. And I want to talk to every person that I can talk to. And I want to to impart some spiritual gift from you. But then with your help, I want to go on to Spain. I want to go everywhere I can go. I want to tell every person I can tell this powerful message. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm eager, I'm zealous, I'm ready to preach this gospel. By God's grace, may that be true of us in this coming year. Father, we're so thankful for this reminder and so thankful for the power that comes to us through the gospel message. We who were trapped in our own condemnation, we who were under your wrath, we who were experiencing your judgment, we who felt the shame of our life and our guilt in one powerful moment when we place our faith in Christ, you make your declaration over us. You call us righteous and we receive your salvation. What a powerful thing, Lord. We can't even take it in. We can't even comprehend it, but we're so thankful for it. And we pray that it would be our meditation so that we, as the Apostle Paul and as every faithful believer through the years, we, without shame, would tell others about it so that they too can know the salvation of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.